All right, we are uh, looking at a few more questions this week, uh, and we're uh, starting a new topic underneath our, our topic of, this, uh, of these questions that God has, uh, or Christ asked, these questions that Christ still asks um, us today. Uh, we're going to be looking at two sides um, uh, this week and next week of redemption. And uh, some of the thoughts um, we're going to discuss might seem a little redundant uh, or at least repetitive. We've discussed them a little bit before, but we're going to try to make it a, a little bit fresh uh, because there is a lot of overlap in, in some of the things that, that Christ taught. And so I, I want to review, first of all, what redemption is. And, and so we've, we've all heard uh, at some point in time uh, the definition, it means to buy back. It literally means, uh, that that's, it's, it's two words, to, to purchase back. And uh, it's, a, it's a transaction. Uh, and so the, the, the problem is, in, in our mind, I, I think when we first approach the concept of redemption is, under what circumstances would you ever buy something back? Now that seems kind of like an odd word to have. Who needs a word for that kind of a transaction? Right. Who does that? Um, well, apparently, uh, someone at some point bought something back that they had had previously, uh, or maybe it developed as a result of uh, religion, uh, as Christianity, or excuse me, uh, Judaism had this as a, a thing that they did. Uh, so, so maybe the word developed from it originally uh, some religious practice, or maybe... It was something uh, like uh, like this. Um, Katie's uh, parents once. Uh, if you don't know Katie's mom, if you've met her. Uh, she is a garage sale extraordinaire person. She found an Oldsmobile at a garage sale for free. Now that takes some doing. Uh, and it ran. It ran pretty good. I don't know if they had to fix it up or whatever, but how, who runs across cars for free? Uh, this was in, in Reno, Nevada. And uh, I thought it was a Grand Torino, but, but uh, her brother corrected me. So anyway, um, he said he, he was sure it wasn't that. But anyway, it was, it was this old car. It was, it was a beast. I've driven it once. Um, and uh, Well, they, they drove it for a while. And then what? They decided to get rid of it, so they sold it. Oh, that's, that's not bad. Right? Uh, and uh, I don't know if it was just getting old and needed repairs or whatever. And, uh, so I guess the people fixed it up or something, drove it around. Well, <clears throat> her, her dad, John, is, uh, is driving down the, the street or something, saw this same vehicle in the front yard for sale for cheaper than they sold it for and bought it back. Hey, literally, so, so somebody somewhere had an experience like Katie's parents and needed a word to describe this thing. So they came up with the word redeem. That's, uh, th- there's a lot of illustrations, I suppose, where, uh, you know, if you've, if you've pawned things, right? People do this. I'm, I find myself in a, in a position financially where I, I have to get myself out of the situation and so I look for what I have. And what do I have? I have a family heirloom. That's worth some money. And so they said, listen, you've got 30 days to, to pay us and get this back. Right? The, that, so there are, there are transactions where this word is necessary in our language. And that's what redeem means. 
Uh, maybe your car is impounded. There's all sorts of things. We use it widely uh, today, uh, this word redeem. Uh, and so there are a few religious connections uh, that, and concepts. Um, one is we would call spiritual ransom. Right? And that's, a, that's an Old Testament concept. And we're going to get into to the questions that Jesus asked, but I'm trying to give some background for, for the word. Um, imagine God tried to, I guess, teach them an idea. And so, just arbitrarily, he said, your firstborn child, I don't know if that meant firstborn male or just any firstborn child, uh, but he said, your firstborn belongs to me. Just, I said so. Okay. Now he said, if you want to keep your child, you have to pay me for your child. Think about that. Think about that, Brady. Right? You gotta, your dad has to pay money to God to keep you in the family. Because otherwise, if you don't, you'd be like, like, uh, like Hannah. Right? Hannah devoted her, her firstborn, Samuel, to God. She, she couldn't have it. So, so she decided she wasn't even going to attempt just for the joy of being able to finally have her own child, she said, I'm, I just, I'm going to wean him, just have him as a little baby toddler when they're in the cute stage, and, and then he's yours. And went to the temple. And that's where he stayed the rest of his life. That, that, he was associated with the temple the rest of his life because he belonged to God. God says, that's fine. You, you don't have to do that. But... If you want to keep your child, your firstborn child, you've got to pay money. You've got to redeem. You've got to buy him back. Right? You thought you had him when you, when you... But he was mine, and you want him back, you've got to redeem. Where did they get this concept from? Well, like I said, there's some, some possible options that we've talked about financial transactions. But, but where would they get the idea of, of ransom? from? Where, where would that concept come from? Did, did God create this idea from nothing? No. Humanity is humanity. And as you go through the Old Testament, you'll find that among the lists of crimes that God had to cover, things that you're not supposed to do, there's about 19 or 20 of them that have the, the death penalty, and one of them is kidnapping. So apparently early on, people figured out that if you stole somebody's child, you could get money to give them back and ransom. And so God kind of uses this idea, something they already have, to say, I'm kind of kidnapping your kid. And if you want him back, you've got to pay me money. And he just uses an idea that they have really to teach everything is God's. That's this idea. We're going to turn with that. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And we're going to begin in verse 31. Mark 8. And verse 31, he says, Jesus began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke this openly. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Let that sink in. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. And when he had turned around, he looked at his disciples in front of them all, and he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he had called the people to himself, with the disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And with what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so here, we're going to get to some questions. We're not going to begin with the questions. We're going to get to that in just a second. But Jesus starts identifying some of the false values. Because we're talking about transaction, we have to talk about value. And so Jesus begins identifying the false values that people have. I was talking with Mike, uh, one of the weeks that we were kind of here by himself, and he, he, he got my brain thinking on this as I was preparing this, so I will credit him with that. But the value of safety, how much we value safety and how much we pray for safety, Safety on our trips. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing to ask for, right? But, but we value our safety so much. And, and, and Jesus says to Peter, he, says, he identifies, he's, he tells him, listen, let me show you what you value so much. Peter so, and it's not even for himself, but, but, but on behalf of somebody else. He gets... He has such a high value on safety that he thinks he has the right to talk to Jesus like a child. I'm going to take you aside. You ever heard that phrase? I'm going to take you aside. I heard that phrase. That that meant nothing good was coming. It's like, if you could give me a few minutes, I got some clothes I would like to start putting on my back. That's what that usually meant. Just start thinking of the excuse. Start sweating. That's what take aside means. And so he takes Jesus aside. It's not going to turn out the way Peter thought that conversation was going to turn out, but... He rebukes. What's Peter's assumption? Peter makes an assumption, I believe. This is my understanding of this. That Jesus' ministry needs a living Jesus to succeed. I think he has a spiritual best interest in mind. I don't think it's purely physical. 
But he's so caught up in his own assumptions that he cannot see what Jesus is doing and that Jesus knows a little bit better. Do you ever get angry at the way God is running the world? I do. I do. Why are these people allowed to do this? And it angers me. And I want to take God aside and say, what are you doing? And you know why? It's because I don't understand anything. That's why. Because I assume that God needs to run things the way I would run them in order to be successful at whatever He wants to do. Certainly God would want and fill in the blank. Certainly He would. Maybe. And yes, maybe God can do what He wants the way He wants. And maybe, just maybe, God has any number of ways He can get to the way. We talked about this in Job this morning. Maybe God is so talented that He can get wherever He wants, any way He wants. Maybe He has that capability. And so we have this value of safety. Certainly, God would want His church not to suffer or to be in a position where there's political pressure or danger or economic impacts or whatever there may be. Certainly, God wouldn't want that. Maybe. Maybe not. So we value safety. We also value self. Jesus gives several requirements here that expose a lot of our false evaluations. He says, if any man would follow me. Now just stop right there. If any man would follow me. He gives kind of the order here of of who's going where, who is leading. I am leading. You are not leading. We think that that we know the way God is going. You're following me. But he says, if you would follow me, you must first deny yourself. Well, that comes directly into contradiction with our value of self. Remember the song, The Greatest Love is Learning to Love Yourself. That's the world's motto. We talked about that even again in this morning's class. That that a a world that, that rejects God must worship and serve and love itself. Because it's got nothing else. Learning to love yourself. And so societies have, uh, across the world, not just ours, have continually decreased the importance of God. And even in the church, God becomes increasingly a guest in our life. He's a participant an important participant, but a participant in the events on our schedule. 
I'm just as guilty as anybody. Get through working on my house for a full day and realize I haven't sat down with God today. I didn't have time for the guest to come over. But there is always a God. There's always a God. It's just who it's going to be. Denying myself does not fit an agenda that believes that, that my fulfillment comes through a personal gratification. Why would I, If I deny myself, then that means I don't get what I want. And how can I be fulfilled if I don't get what I want? I'm not fulfilled. <laughs> I filled nothing. I had this, I wanted it filled, and I, I didn't do that. So how can I feel fulfilled? It's this, this paradox. So he says, deny yourself. We're coming to the questions, I promise. And take up your cross. Years of Christianity, centuries of Christianity, millennia of Christianity have made this idea really not as impactful. And I suppose it's a good thing. Christianity has been so successful that we don't really understand what he's saying. Years of Christianity have made it acceptable and cool to wear a cross. Think about that. Maybe people don't know what that means. People have no idea what they're wearing. Oh, it's just a cross. Do you know what that means? It's the death penalty. Imagine if you had a loved one that was shot wearing a, a gun, wearing an AK-47 around your neck. And you had a loved one that was killed with one. Right? Just, you would never do that. This is what it was. The cross was capital punishment. It was the electric chair. It was being burnt at the stake. It was whatever the, the, the thing that comes, it was the guillotine. And so when he says, you must take up your cross, there's two things implied here. First of all, it's death. You must die. Well, that doesn't fit into my value of my self-worth and self-being and safety and all that. It's kind of opposite of that. But another thing that people don't really get, we, we talk about this all the time. You ever hear someone, well, that's just my cross to bear? What do they mean? When you say, that's my cross to bear. Think about the things that, that you associate with that phrase. It's my cross to bear. It means um, you've been dealt a bad hand, right? You've got a, a, an annoying coworker. Huh? He's just my cross to bear. Right? And you, just, you go to work and you dread being next to that guy. Oh, he's, always a, he's a drag on life. He's always complaining. Just my cross to bear. Right? Or, or uh, some, it might be a physical infirmity. You, you, you might have a serious physical problem. And it's your cross to bear. And you deal with this chronic pain. It's my cross to bear. And we come up with all these things. And, and we mean good things when we say it's my cross to bear. It means I have to endure it. But that's not what this means. 
He says, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. It was a choice. In other words, this was a condition you can decide not to have. But if you're going to follow me, you must willingly choose to have this condition of suffering and death. Well, that's a little bit different. Imagine if you could get out of chronic pain and decide not to do it. Well, no one would decide not to do it. You would all decide, I'm going to get rid of chronic pain. He's talking about a choice. See, now we get to the questions. Understanding the values that we hold so important, we come to two challenges One is easy to understand, and I think one we read backwards. I always did. And then I started reading it. Then I started looking for commentaries on it, and no one comments on the other one. They always comment on the first one. I'm like, what? Give me out. This is the one I have no problem understanding. I don't need three paragraphs on that one. This one's easy. This one, not so much. Nothing. So I guess they're kind of where I'm at. I'll do my best. But he says, what does it profit to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It's a rhetorical question. What does it profit? Nothing. Right? That's the easy answer. It doesn't profit anything. And we can understand this is a rhetorical question. So let's answer the rhetorical question. Because everybody hates to do that. Right? And you ask a, in class, you ask, a, would God want us to sin? Right? <laughs> hate those questions. Uh, someone answer it. He's not going to move on until you answer the rhetorical question. So let's answer it. It's obviously... It profits you nothing. Now think of the rhetorical question now. Is it possible to gain the whole world? No. That's the degree to which it is rhetorical. Even if you could gain the whole world, what would it mean spiritually to you? Because he's asking them, what are all these pursuits? What are all these values that you have placed so importantly high in your life? What are they worth, really? And what he's doing is just revealing the absurdity of our goals with this question. Yes, it's rhetorical. But sometimes, if someone doesn't identify something with a rhetorical question, we won't Get it. I never thought of it that way. The absurdity of being Bill Gates with no one to give your money to when you die. Even if, even if we consider that to be a great thing. Is it great? I don't know. But at least it's something At least you could say my great, 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 great grandchildren will be, will come from money, as they say. He doesn't even have that to leave it to. He has zip to do with his money. What an absurd goal. Now people... This is the absurdity. People know that it's impossible to gain the whole world. 
And it doesn't stop them from trying. Was it Howard Hughes was asked how much money is enough? He said one more dollar. I might be falsely attributing that, that quote, but just, just one more dollar. That's all I want. How absurd. You can't have it all. What would it profit you to gain the whole world? Lose your soul. Well, how would I lose my soul? Why can't I have both? Well, you can lose it by accident, that's for sure. Time and focus take up too much time from God. My goals, I don't have to be pursuing bad things. I could be pursuing noble things and wonderful things and meaningful things in terms of just the natural and studying and learning hard and getting my degrees and doing this, doing that. They can all be wonderful things that I'm doing. I have zero negative implications in there whatsoever. I've just consumed time from God. And filling a schedule with secular things, even good secular things, will compete eventually with personal time with God. And a soul begins to starve. So you can lose your soul by accident, but you can likely, more likely, lose your soul by choice. See, even if it starts out as secular and wonderful, every time there's a conflict, spiritual things will lose. The more the focus is on this. Well, the bills are tight. God will understand. God will put that one in your way. He'll give you that choice. Just to see. Busy schedule this month. God will understand. He'll give you that choice. And he'll see. The choice might be simply to sacrifice a principle here or there. What am I willing to do to get a promotion? What am I willing to do to do this? What am I willing to do? And they'll be there, little by little, little by little. You will eventually have to make a choice that either sacrifices integrity or reinforces it. God will make sure. I heard someone talking as a baseball. I don't use a lot of sports analogies, but but I, I like this one. And was, the guy was talking about, it was a coach. I think it was Joe Torre. He was talking about uh, you know, when, when batters are going through a slump. And, and, and the, the thing is, oh, uh, put them way down at the bottom of the order because they're going through a slump. He says, it'll find you. I, I don't care where you move them in the batting order. That, 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 that bad situation where you're hoping, it's going to find you. He's going to come up in the ninth with two men on and two out. He's going to have to figure it out sooner or later, so I don't move him. It'll find you. And God, God makes sure. Okay, sports analogy over. God will make sure the situation finds you. If you're wrestling with the value of things, He'll make sure it finds you. And then we come to this other question. 
And this is, you've got to read this close, because if you don't, you think he's asking the opposite question. If he was asking the opposite question, it would be easy. He says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And this is where we want to pull back in that concept of redemption. He's not saying, what will a man sell his soul for? That would be easy. That would be the same question, essentially, that we just asked. He's flipping it. He says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? See, he doesn't have the soul. He's lost the soul. And he wants to redeem it. He wants to get the soul back. But what has the man acquired? The man has acquired money, position, power, whatever things that he has sought and valued and prized, his safety, this is that. And he now says, I'm going to take my, my, my stuff I've acquired and I want my soul back. Says, that doesn't work that way. Because those things aren't worth your soul. They're worth less. You now have nothing to pay for your soul. That's a very inconvenient position to find yourself in. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Stores do a thing called redeeming coupons. It is the store that redeems the coupon. Did you know that? You don't redeem the coupon. We always say, I'm going to go redeem this coupon. No, the store redeems the coupon. So here's how it works. The store prints up a bunch of pieces of paper. They're worthless. They're just worth the ink and the paper. They are literally worthless. They then send them out to the world, their community. And you bring them in, and they purchase, they literally purchase or partially purchase that paper back for a product. If you think about it, that's the transaction or a product at a cheaper price. They redeem the coupon. They buy back. They're not buying the product. They're buying their coupon back for a can of beans or whatever. And it's worthless to them. Now, we understand it's marketing and all that stuff. But I want you to think of this. This is kind of the concept. The value is set because of the one who printed the thing. And God says... I want to redeem your soul. Now, my soul on a cosmic level is fairly worthless. But it has value. Why does it have value? Because God said so. My soul is not equal to God's soul. My soul is not equal to Christ's blood. But Christ says, I'm redeeming it with a product that is so far more valuable than the paper. But I want the soul back. And so I am giving Christ this great product to get the soul back. What, is, what can a man give in exchange for soul? You can give nothing. So I want to conclude... We celebrated Thanksgiving this week, which is a weird phrase. 
Think about it. Thanksgiving. It's not really anything at all. It's the easiest thing to do. When you give thanks, was that hard? No. It required literally nothing from me except a little thought. That's all it required of me. It's cheap to give. So cheap. It's noble. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do. But it required nothing of me. Usually when I close, I I give a challenge or ask a question. But I want you to leave and ask yourself a question. Give yourself a challenge. If I could, what would I give? Because it will be different in this room. What would you give? If you found yourself in an inconvenient position that you had to try to work yourself out of any situation, whether God or anybody else, what would you leverage to get yourself out of a sticky spot? What would that thing be? I don't know what that answer is because it's different. Some have more money. They might use money. What is the thing of value that you would leverage to get yourself out of that spot? Don't ask it as a rhetorical question. Analyze your life. What is the thing I value? Then ask yourself this question. What would I do if God asked for it? What would I do? Because God says, deny yourself and take up your cross. Be willing to give up whatever is most important to yourself. Those are some hard questions. This will identify what God wants. Now God might never require that of me. But he might. It's an odd idea. But God might require me to give more than thanks. He might want more of a challenge. So I ask you to look at how you valued yourself. To look at how you valued things in your life. And ask these questions.